Uh, we're going to transition today to our sermon, which is going to be given by our lead pastor, Kevin Larson. Our passage is Matthew 5, 5, and if you use the Black House Bibles, that is on page 809. Uh, I'm going to invite you to stand with me, if you're able, as we read God's Word. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Dear God, we thank you for this day. Help us to be a meek people, God. Help us to be gentle and lowly in heart like Jesus who has come before us. Thank you for Pastor Kevin, and I ask that you would um, just bless our time here. Uh, bless his preparation and the words that he says today. Would he be faithful to this word, and uh, would it have its intended effect on us? God, would your word transform our hearts and help us walk away transformed, God, to walk away with obedience and faith? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome once again. Really excited to keep going through this section of scripture, which has been called the Beatitudes. It's definitely one of my favorite sections of all. Hope it will be for yours as well. Um, when it comes to thinking about how to understand and engage culture as a Christian, if there's any modern writer or leader that I'd encourage you to read or listen to, other than maybe Tim Keller, it would be Russell Moore. Russell Moore. I had the privilege of being one of his first students and have been able to keep up with him over the years as God has used him. He's brilliant and so helpful, but he has this newsletter, which I would encourage you to subscribe to. But in the recent one, he talks about what he calls the revenge of black letter Christians. The revenge of black letter Christians. So maybe you've heard, maybe you haven't, of people who would identify themselves as red letter Christians. So many, many versions of the, the Bible, maybe yours, um, has the words of Christ in red. So red letter Christians would say, why don't we just focus on the stuff that, that Jesus said and not worry about as much all this other stuff? Well, I'd say that that perspective ignores that all of our Bibles are filled with the words of Jesus. We need to hear and embrace all of what's in Scripture. So that's why I'm not the, the biggest fan of red-letter Bibles, although I do have one that I use all the time. But more is talking about another problem, people calling themselves Christians but completely ignoring the words of red letters. Wow, well, like the words that we're reading here in Matthew 5. So Moore mentions conversations that he's had with pastors recently who reminded their people to love their enemies, and then they've been asked about where they get their, quote, liberal ideas. And one church leader who preached through the Sermon on the Mount and had a congregant say to him, you know, we've tried to turn the other cheek stuff, and it doesn't work. It's time now to fight. Well, Moore also quotes... Wendell Berry's novel, Jaber Crow, which I don't know if you've read, but I, I have and I love it. And the main character, Jaber, is waiting his turn in a barber shop. And he overhears another customer there, Troy, who's in an earlier era, who's railing against the communists about how they all need to be gathered up and shot. And Jaber turns to Troy and he says, 
Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them who hate you. And then Troy turns to him and says, where did you get that crap? And then Jabin responds, from Jesus Christ. And then Troy, all he could do is just say, oh, kind of walk away. Today we're hearing Christ's words from Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And sadly, we're living in an age where people calling themselves Christians are, through their words or their actions, essentially calling these words crap. And calling out believers, calling them cowards who are trying to actually live out these words. Screaming on social media as individuals, shouting in groups around government buildings, we've communicated somehow that Christ's words won't get us to where we want to go. That they're not even worth trying to follow. Now, this is nothing new. Shortly after the time of Christ, an emperor named Constantine declared himself a Christian and then began to try to take the world for Christ by force. Not too far down the road, a bishop named Ambrose, who was as much of a politician as anything, fought for Christians to ascend to become the, the majority group in the empire. Not too many years ago, a group that called themselves the Moral Majority tried to rally Christians together to seize power in America. But these days, you could argue that the children have decided that being moral isn't really even worth it. But what we're going to see today is that Jesus calls us to a different, nobler purpose and to get there different, nobler methods. And what we have to say is this, that that kind of behavior, those kind of tax, tactics, Sure, don't look like our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to start this morning. First, with who our Lord is. Who our Lord is. It shouldn't be too controversial for me to say, I don't think, that Jesus Christ wouldn't be found on Facebook excoriating someone's views or bludgeoning someone with a flagpole at a political rally. No. That's because the Jesus that's described in our Bibles is meek, right? Many of us have read the book together, Gentle and Lowly, by Dane Orland. And there's some copies out there for free on the welcome table. I'd encourage you to get, get one of those if you haven't read it. The title comes from what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Listen to these again. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now those are some of the most comforting words in the Bible, for sure. But here again, how Jesus describes himself. I am gentle and lowly in heart. The word for gentle there, that's actually the same word for meek that we see in our verse today. So Jesus says, run into my arms, come find rest. For I am meek. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, there are these passages that point ahead to Christ. They've been called the servant songs. So they're poetic words that prophesy how Jesus would come and give of himself. And they show this gentle and lowly heart. I want you to hear Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So there, that's again prophesying. It's talking about Jesus. And do you catch how he is described? As one who doesn't need to raise his voice, as one who has the gentlest of touch, and one who keeps trusting God until all he had come to do for him is accomplished, until justice comes for the weak and the powerless. Now to the, the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 10. So Paul is writing this to this church in Corinth, to these people he loves, and there are these false teachers in that church that are trying to tear down his ministry. And the main thing that they're saying is that Paul is not a true apostle at all. And a big part of their critique has to do with his demeanor. They say that he's too humble, he's too soft-spoken, that he doesn't act like the leaders of that day, he doesn't do and say what they do. To that, Paul says this in chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. So the apostle says here, and he's, he's trying to address one of their arguments against him. He says, you say, I'm all humble when I'm there in front of you, but then I talk really, really tough when I'm out of town. No, it's just who I am. I'm just trying to look like our Lord Jesus. And catch how Paul again describes him. He's full of meekness and gentleness. So from the cradle, you know, in that manger, to the cross, his death there, that's who he is, it's who Paul is, and it's who we as believers are called to be. And that's where I want to turn now, second to how Jesus remakes us. We're going to turn from how Jesus lives to what he wants from us, how he wants us to live, to his teaching that in your Bibles, again, may be in the red letters, where Jesus says he wants us to be meek. So you may remember Jesus, again, is sitting on a mountain, and there he should remind us of another leader who spoke for God, who was also known for being meek. In the Old Testament, back in the book of Numbers, in chapter 12, Moses finds himself in a really tough place. So he's guiding God's people through the desert, en route to the promised land, and they're getting restless, they're getting rebellious, and even his brother and sister stand up against him. And they try to call out the way that he's living, they're trying to paint him as a hypocrite, really they're more likely than anything being racist, but it all seems to be just a pretense for trying to question his authority and for them to try to worm their way up to the platform. But they say to them, Numbers 12 says, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And then I love this line. It says, And the Lord heard it. And the Lord heard it. So we try to teach our kids this plain truth. God hears everything, guys. And he hears these words right here. And the Lord is about to get angry. But what does it say about Moses? Verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek. More than all people who were on the face of the earth. Well the, the father vindicates Moses here. And the fact that the prophet waits for this. And he doesn't put up his fist and try to 
defend itself, it helps us understand, I think, what it means to be me. Sinclair Ferguson defines that word this way. He says, the word meekness is notoriously difficult to define. It is certainly not a lack of backbone. Rather, it is the humble strength that belongs to the man who has learned to submit to difficulties. Difficult experiences and difficult people, knowing that in everything, God is working for his good. The meek man is the one who has stood before God's judgment and abdicated all his supposed rights. He has learned, in gratitude for God's grace, to submit himself to the Lord and to be gentle with sinners. I think that's a, a part, a, in good part, what it means to be meek. I may have told you this story before, but our friend Darren Swanson, who has been doing a smashing good job preaching, by the way, um, the guy on the piano up here, um, he once traveled over to St. Louis to hear Jackie Cole Perry speak. It made me rap, I'm not sure if she did, but um, they went, he went over there with some friends, and there he ran into a friend a pretty large friend, a pretty intimidating friend, and one whose name he just couldn't quite remember. Darren had played basketball with this guy. They knew each other, but they didn't know each other. And I think they're up there talking to, to Jackie, and he's like, hey, I know you, man. And Darren looks at the guy and says, hey, and he says, what's your name again? And the guy responds, Jaden. And Darren's like, oh, yeah, that's right, Jaden. And yeah, it's Jaden Cox the wrestler, the NCAA champion, the Olympic medalist. So he played basketball with him all the time, and Darren still had no idea. And that says less about Darren than it does about Jane, right? What a picture of meekness. You may be huge, you may be famous, but you don't feel compelled to throw that around or expect attention from people around you because you trust the Lord. I've heard others refer to meekness as controlled strength. It's not weakness. No. You're just not aggressive or defensive. You just don't have to be. Because your future rests in the one who's so much stronger. And for that reason, you can be gentle and lowly. Think about it with me. This is not that complicated, but what takes more strength? To stand up for yourself with your words, with your fists? or to stay silent and to not fight back? We know the answer to that. To be meek like Jesus is way harder, for sure. This also isn't just niceness, right? Being affable, being agreeable. Sure, most of the time a meek person will come off as nice, as helpful, certainly kind. But yeah, like Jesus will at times have to rock the boat, will have to break the awkward silence, will have to speak the truth in love. But when you do that, you won't be sticking up for yourself, fighting for what you want, but thinking of others for their good, and of the Lord, and of His honor. As David Murray put it, I admit a little bit on the cheesy side, but he says, meekness is opposed to meanness. D.A. Carson explains meekness this way, as a controlled desire to see others' interests advance ahead of one's own. I mentioned this last time, but there, there seems to be a progression through these beatitudes. You first see how poor you are, how much you need God, and then you begin to grieve deeply over that reality. And that leads, as we see here in verse 5, to the shift and how we relate to other people. We're gentle, we're humble, 
We're not posturing, trying to get attention. We're not defensive, trying to fend off others' attacks. We're meek. We're meek. And make no mistake, this is a work of God. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit because getting to that place again is extremely difficult. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has written probably the best-known commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he explains it this way. He says, I can see my own utter nothingness and helplessness face-to-face with the demands of the gospel and the law of God. I am aware, when I am honest with myself, of the sin and the evil that are within me and that drag me down. And I am ready to face both these things. But how much more difficult is it to allow other people to say things like that about me? I instinctively resent it. We, all of us, prefer to condemn ourselves than to allow somebody else to condemn us. I say of myself that I am a sinner, but instinctively I do not like anybody else to say that I am a sinner. That is the principle that is introduced at this point. So far, I myself have been looking at myself. Now other people are looking at me, and I am in a relationship to them, and they are doing certain things to me. How do I react to that? That is the matter which is dealt with at this point. I think you will agree that this is more humbling and more humiliating than everything that has gone before. It is to allow other people to put the searchlight upon me instead of doing it myself. So I can make fun of my sister, and I have. But if you do it, I'm going to be mad. But you try to call me out and you try to question me, it's go time. Let's throw down, right? Now, if we don't understand the first beatitude again that we're poor, and then feel it, um, the second one says, and mourn over it. When someone comes along and spotlights our weakness and sin, or when they question our goodness or godliness, we're going to be prone to lash out. But if we understand those things and we entrust ourselves to his grace, we will respond with meekness, or a stop defines the term with a gentle spirit. This is the way Jesus lived, even to the point of death. As 1 Peter 2.23 puts it, Christ continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And if we're Christians, this is the life that he calls us into, emptying ourselves, making ourselves nothing, walking down, though, the road that leads to everything. And that's where I want to turn now. Third to what Jesus promises us. What's promised to the meek here? The world. The world. Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. Have you heard the way G.K. Chesterton defines a paradox? He says a paradox is truth standing on her head to get attention. Truth standing on her head to get attention. Doesn't this promise here, doesn't that just kind of mess with our brains and raise our curiosity? Doesn't it cause us to pay attention? We've already seen that the poor are the ones that get the kingdom. I mean, that's upside down. We've seen that the criers are the ones that get the comfort, but here it's the meek, not the strong, that will inherit the world, right? What does Jesus mean by that? Now, to be clear, this command, again, like the others, isn't this thing we do that if we obey, we get a reward. No, the people that are meek are those in whom God is at work. And as a result, they'll inherit the earth. Now, we should first take this metaphorically, I believe. 
back when I was dating my wife, if I had written her a song, and I, I did, I might write a lyric like, lyric like this, you know, and it might reflect some of the new edition or music I was listening to back in the day, back when boy bands were actually good. But I might write to her, you're all I need, and I'll, I'll give you the world, baby. And I, I still feel that today. But I'd be talking about giving her everything she needs, all that's good for her. And that's one way I think we can think about it here. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, he's wearing his heart on his sleeve. Chapter 6, he hemorrhages out this list of all the sufferings he's endured. And he ends it this way. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. So in Christ, Paul says that he's found the world. He says he's content. He has all he needs, despite what the cruel world has brought upon him. So I think we need to understand it first in a metaphorical sense. But I also think there's a second way that we have to take this very much literally. Because what's promised to those who know Christ? A new world. Truly. Now there's been this idea that's been peddled in American churches that's really more akin to Greek philosophy than true Christianity. And it's this idea that, that heaven is our goal, that we fly away from this broken body, and then our souls spend an eternity just floating around with Jesus. But that's not our hope. That's not the way the, the Bible concludes at all. Listen to, listen to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. Now maybe Kirk Cameron told you otherwise. But the way this all ends isn't with us flying up to heaven while we look back at the earth bursting up in flames. It's with heaven, it's us coming down to earth with Jesus and his saints to renew everything we see and to set up a kingdom that we're a part of. That's our hope, Cars. So there's a sense in which, yes, it's bad, as Madonna once said, to be a material girl. Right here, right now, focus on spiritual things for sure. But hear me, matter isn't evil. Right? Matter isn't evil. God's creation is good. One day it's going to be fully restored, and we are going to, as the Bible says, reign with them. When Jesus says we'll inherit the earth, I think that's what he's talking about. Christ's words would have brought the hearers back to Psalm 37. Verse 11 says, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 9, just above, says, It's those who wait for the Lord who will get that inheritance. And I think that let's kind of get in the mind of the psalmist and understand what meekness needs. Those who wait on the Lord. Not a bad way to summarize meekness. Those people will inherit the land. Now the original hearers of Jesus would of course thought first of Israel. That God's people were the heirs of that land and it would be theirs forever. They were Jews listening to him primarily. But that land... It points ahead to something bigger, to the whole earth, to the world that will be ours with Christ if we're his disciples. We can't skip over that word inherit, can we? 
We're the heirs, those of us who are in Christ. This is a reminder that if we believe we're a part of His family, that we're children of the King, that we're brothers and sisters together, we're heirs with Christ. And He's a good dad, and that means that He'll provide for us today, and also that we'll be cared for forever. We have an inheritance, and that's a pretty amazing thing. Think also of this, in Jesus, God's promise to Abraham is ours. Back in the beginning, back in Genesis 12, God promised a great people in a great land, a people blessed and meant to be a blessing to the world. And that's where I want to turn now. Fourth, to who we now are. What's the first word of all these Beatitudes? And where do we get that, that term Beatitude again? We're blessed. Blessed, that's us. We experience the fullness of His favor. That's what it means. It's far more than happy. It's, it's being under the favor, the love of God. And I want you to hear that understanding that, who we are, the blessed ones, is the key to helping us live as meek people. So on one hand, the fact that we live with meekness is the proof that we're among the blessed. But also the fact that we're blessed, as we grow in understanding of that, that's also the pathway for us to live in meekness. Whatever you think of Dolly Parton's music, uh, she seems like a pretty legit human being, you know, writing a check for the COVID vaccine, you know, that was kind of cool. But recently, she turned down an invitation to join the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't know if you heard that. So she said, I'm clearly not a rock star, and so it just doesn't make sense. But deeper than that, I think she was just fine. She was okay with who she was. She didn't need to prove that. I have a pastor friend who likes to say, you have nothing to prove, you have no one to impress. You have nothing to prove, you have no one to impress. That's true for us if we're believers. We're blessed. I look out now and I see my family on this road. They know me, they really know me at my worst, and they still love me. So whatever happens to me, I'm gonna be okay. I feel that by so many of you here as well. But think about this. We have our Father's affection. We have His affirmation. We have His love. He has our back. So that means that we're free to be meek. So if we're defensive, we've forgotten that we have a defender in heaven. If we're easily offended, we've lost just how accepted we really are. If we're easily angered, we've forgotten just how loved we are by Him. And if we walk around with our heads up, with a pretense, we've forgotten that we are royalty. We have His grace. That's far more than we deserve from our Father in Heaven. So if we get what we feel is less than we deserve from people on Earth, we don't freak out, we don't fight back, because our Father is the King of the Earth. Therefore, we don't have to fret. We can just rest. And we can be gentle and lowly like His Son. Think about this. We're fully known by our Father. And we're fully accepted by the work of Jesus, who lived for us and died for us. If we trust in what He's done, we can put down our swords. This is us as individual Christians. This is us together as a church. We're blessed and living with this mentality allows us to truly be a blessing. Being meek was seen as a vice back in that day. 
It sure gets portrayed as cowardice today. But it's the way the children of the king live. And it's his means for blessing, for bringing his kingdom to the earth. It's not the strong who inherit the earth, it's the meek. The battle isn't won by force, it's won by faith. If you're like me, you're watching the news, you're witnessing what Putin is trying to do to try to take over the earth. But I don't think it's really about Ukraine, maybe about whatever nation is next. It's about Vladimir and his reputation, about showing his muscles, about building a legacy. But Putin doesn't have a father in heaven, and he thinks he has to show off his strength. But that doesn't have to be us. It doesn't have to be us. I once had a friend who was surrounded by love, but I think for him it was just too good to be true. Some other believers tried to guide him to help. It was just something he couldn't comprehend, he couldn't quite take. So he just kept fighting and fighting until there was really nothing left but wreckage as far as his eyes could see. And I kept thinking over and over, if you just put down your fists, I would give you a hug. If you could just put them down, man, we'd all hug you. Put them down, child of God. Put them down, Karas. We have his embrace. That's more than enough. The other day, my son and I were trying to move his basketball goal back into place. And it's, it's one of those that are movable, you know, that has the, the base filled with sand. And we would find ourselves working against one another. You know, one was pushing while the other was pulling. One was lifting while the other was resting. And that can get frustrating really quick. It might bring to mind some of you here the, the great pivot scene in Friends. But that's what happens when we don't live by these beatitudes and here walk with meekness. Right? We're fighting with everything we got, but we're actually working against God's purposes. And then we wonder why we can't get any traction. And that's again, we have to remember we're meant to be a blessing. We should want to see all the nations of the earth come to know Jesus. I stumbled upon this article in the past week by Dane Ortland, who wrote again, Gentle and Lowly, and he listed four reasons why our gentleness, our meekness, is so important. He says, first, it surprises people. So in this angry world that's just known for outrage, it really stands out. Second, it woos people. So people lower their defenses, they open up to us, and they allow us to come near. Third, it dignifies people. When we're aggressive, when we're defensive, we are coming across with superiority. The gentleness communicates, you matter. Fourth, most important, of course, meekness gives people a living picture of Jesus himself. Again, because Jesus is meek. But I also have to say this. Don't think for a second that that's all Jesus is. Right? He's also majestic. He's meekness and he's majesty. He's the king. He, the one who came in humility will one day come in glory and he'll reign over the earth and us with him. If we're believers, that's our hope and that's our future. But until that day, what do we do? We love. I love this quote from Henry Nouwen. He writes, for Jesus, there are no countries to be conquered, no ideologies to be imposed, no people to be dominated. There are only children, men and women, to be loved. I want to close the way I began with that original quote um, from Russ Moore. 
about the Sermon on the Mount not working. If someone said that to me, I think I'd want to ask some follow-up questions. First, I would say, so you say it didn't work. It didn't work to, to what exactly? What were you trying to do? What was your goal there? And if the person responded, you know, get power back, you know, reclaim our place at the table, you know, have this Christian nation again, to that I'd respond, so what gives you the indication that we're to have that right now? Where do you see that in the Bible? Second, I'd say, how were you trying to get there? What were you doing that you think didn't work? What were your methods? And if the person responded, you know, fight, you know, tell people how it is, get our people back in office, whatever it takes, do that. To that I would say, what makes you think God wants you to do that? Especially as you read the Beatitudes here. Moore writes in that article, he says, to be clear, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't work, and it never has. If what we mean by working is seeing the world's definition of success on the world's timetable, ending up crucified is no society's definition of winning. Should our goal be that God be glorified and that the earth comes to honor Him? Should our methods be what He calls for? What are those? Sharing our hope? Washing people's feet? God shows the foolish things of this world, our weakness, the low things, the despised things, 1 Corinthians 1 says, to bring about his kingdom. Why does it say? So that no one can boast and that he alone would be glorified. God willed that his son and all his children would win the world through meekness and not through might, not through the sword, but through service. But the irony is that by doing things his way, we all get what we ultimately want. We gain the whole world. But suffering comes before glory. Those gentle in spirit experience the fullness of his favor because they have the Father's care now and his inheritance forever. Let's pray. God, by your grace, for your glory, work this in us. Lord, may we honor you by trusting you with everything in us. When things are hard, when people are mean, um, just in this world um, where it seems like everyone is yelling at each other, um, I pray that we would not be that, that we would live out our identity that you've given us as your children, who, because we're your children, we can be mean, Lord. It's so hard to do. Um, we stumble and fall so much. Um, but by your Holy Spirit, um, transform us little by little that we could just be conformed to the image of your Son and, and honor Him, honor you in this world. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name.